All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday service. My name is Thomas. I'm part of pastoral staff here. And if this is your first time here, we want to welcome you. And for everybody, just want to preview a little bit about what's going on. Just know we, uh, we believe in the spirit here, but we also believe in planning. And so we have things laid ahead for the summer. I just want to let you guys know what to expect. Uh, our sermon series, they come not on the whim, but we try to plan this out um, throughout the season. And so today we're finishing up which I'll be talking a little bit, the sermon series are currently in, currently in, but in the month of July, we're actually going to do a new sermon series. It's going to begin next week. It's, uh, it should be up on the screen. Uh, it's called a faith, oh, is it next slide? Yeah, there we go. A faith of our own. And this is the idea of, as a church, we, I feel like a lot of us were leasing our faith or we're just kind of going to church. Don't even know why. We, our parents brought us here. Uh, and we're just used to the habit of going through it. But how do you, what does it look like to actually own your faith as a church and as a community? And so we're actually giving, uh, bringing in different guest speakers to come. Some of them might look familiar to some of you. Uh, if you guys know Pastor Jay Song, he's coming one week. Uh, we also have uh, new faces that are coming as well. So look forward to that. And that's going to be in the month of July. Then the month of August, we're going to be going through the book of Titus. And this is a, uh, a book, a short letter in the New Testament. But it's all about what it means to be a, a people uh, in the church and in the world. So we look forward to that short series as well. Well, and then in the month of September, we're going to be going through a series on community, and this is our practice series. So a few months ago, we actually did a series on the practices of Jesus, and we kind of did a bird's eye view of all the practices, uh, but every once in a while, we want to pause and look deep into one of those practices, and this upcoming summer at the end, we want to look at the practice of community and what that looks like. And then for the rest of the fall, we're going to be doing a sermon series. Um, right now, it's titled The Journey of Faith, but pretty much everyone's at different places. What does it look like to grow in Christ, depending on the, the place that you are at, the stage of faith that you're in? So we're going to do a deep dive into that for about two months. And so that's kind of just a bird's eye view of what's going to look ahead for this upcoming summer and the fall. Also in the summer, we have our summer book clubs that are starting. So if you signed up for that, you should have gotten an email about when that's starting. Uh, we also have our volunteer lunch appreciation next week. So so all you volunteers, it's going to be an awesome lunch. Uh, we're bringing the Taco Man again, bringing dessert. It's for those who volunteer, though, so just FYI, and that's going to be next week. And then um, we also are going to, we use this time a lot in the summer for our staff to plan the whole year. So if you could just keep our staff in mind, because we'll be heading on to, like, just doing a lot of, like, behind-the-scenes planning for the upcoming year. Because in the fall, community groups start again, ministries, uh, they kind of go full blast, and then we also are going to do membership and new initiatives. So that's going to be the upcoming year. And if you're a member here, if you could just pray for this upcoming season because we want to we really feel this is an encouraging season of our church and we want to plan and pray well but today we're going to be concluding our sermon series through the letter of James we've been going through this sermon series for the past 10 weeks and today is the last time you'll be hearing from James in a while he concludes in chapter 5 verse 13 to 20 so if you have your programs or if you have your bibles we're going to read this passage together and here at our church we believe our God is alive and is living when he speaks and so can we all rise together as we read together from James chapter 5, verse 13 to 20. James writes, starting verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain and the land produced its fruit. My brothers and sisters, 
If any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, would you speak to us today one last time through the letter of James. Help us, Lord, to hear his exhortations so that we, O Lord, can know how to live in light of the gospel together as a community. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Does anybody know what today is? Like what makes today really special? It's not July 4th, that's Tuesday. Anyone know what today is? It's a special day. July 2nd. Today is the halfway point of the year. It's like right in the middle. So 2023, just know there have 182 days have already passed. 182 days remain. We are stuck in the middle right now today. God is sovereign. It happens to be perfectly aligned with this Sunday so I could use it as a sermon illustration. It's wonderful. Today is the midpoint. It is our halftime, if you want to call it that. When you take a moment to think back at 2023 and you reflect upon this past year, how has it been so far? How has your year been? Do you remember back in January the New Year's resolution that you made? Do you guys remember? Some of the popular ones might be you wanted to go to the gym this year. You wanted to start eating healthy this year. You wanted to have a better work-life balance for the sake of your mental health. You wanted to join our Bible reading plan and read through the entire New Testament with us. How's that going? How's it going? If you're like most people, just know the resolution you made in January, it ended in January. One-third of people who make a New Year's resolution, that stops at the end of January. You know when the next moment is where people just drop off their New Year's resolution? It's in, three, in month three, March. Around March, that's when a lot of people, they just drop off. And so usually it's about 11% statistically, they continue on their New Year's resolution, but you know when it stops again? When after this moment, it just drops off, or you tend to finish the rest of the year? Today, the six-month mark. This is the, the halftime of the year. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, well, why, why did you drop your New Year's resolution? Like, what stopped you? Like, what made you stop going into the gym? What made you stop eating healthy? What made you not go through with the Bible reading plan? And I feel like for a lot of us here, it was not the lack of conviction. A lot of you at that time, you wanted this year to be a blessed year, a year that you're healthier physically, emotionally, spiritually. But the problem is life happens, right? Life happened for you. You got tired, you got busy, unexpected difficulties or circumstances arose, different priorities took precedence to the commitments that you made. In fact, the New York Times, I was reading an article about this, it says that the more important than having a New Year's resolution is creating a game plan to sustain that resolution. That's what you need, because again, most of us just simply drop it. And the reason why I bring this up is because James, as we've been going through his letter for the past 10 weeks, he's been telling us a lot of stuff. He's been telling us, hey, don't just believe in the gospel, but this is how you live out the gospel. And he's been hitting upon different themes of what life in the gospel looks like. So for the past 10 weeks, for example, if you look on the screen, there's uh, topics that he's been hitting. Like, for example, the first part in chapter one, it's all about suffering, respond to suffering in the gospel, listening and doing, community, true faith. And then he keeps going where we went over the idea of true wisdom, pride, our plans, our money. And he's telling us that when you live all of your God, the gospel on Sundays, but throughout all of life, what ends up happening is not just you become a religious person, but you're becoming the human being that God intended you to be. You're living the way that God designed for human beings to live. 
Because human beings, we are called to live in light of what Christ has done for us. We're called to live in light of who God is. And this plays out in all areas of our life. But how do we actually live this out? How does this become not just a conviction in the moment and then just dies away? What do we need to sustain us? And this is where James, in this last chapter, this last section of chapter 5, he gives us a final practice. He gives us a final, if you want to call it tools, of what you really need to live the gospel life. It's like this TV show I've been watching. Have you ever heard that TV show called Alone? It's on Netflix. It's awesome. They just grab 10 people, drop them off an island randomly. You just got to survive alone. But there's a catch. They each get to select certain tools, certain things to make them survive. And they have all this knowledge and skill of how to survive, but what are the final things you're going to need to survive alone on this island? And that's what James is kind of doing us for today. There's a lot of ways to live the gospel, but what do you need in order to live this out? What are the final tools, the rhythms of life? And so that's why James chapter 5, it ends the way it does. It ends kind of awkwardly. This is the ending of his letter. And unlike other New Testament letters, he doesn't go, hey, and here's a blessing to you. I bless you in the name of the Father. He doesn't go, now greet this person, which all the other New Testament letters do. Instead, he gives us a final exhortation. He tells us, I want, you want to live this out? Make sure you have these final things in mind. Make sure you practice these last things. It's like a coach at halftime telling you the game plan. And before you go out the rest of the game, he says, hey, before you go, work together and play hard. He's like kind of giving this final exhortation. That's what James is doing for us. And so today, as we reach the halftime of our year, we've already received a lot of detailed instructions of what the gospel looks like in life. But how do we sustain this? What are the tools we need? Three things James tells us. Number one, you need a life of real prayer. If you want to have any chance of living the life of the gospel, you need a life of real prayer. Secondly, you need a community of faith. You need people around you. And then lastly, you need to practice a genuine care for each other. You've got to care about people. So a, real life, a life of real prayer, a community of faith, and a genuine care. First, a life of real prayer. So this last section we just read in verse 13, James begins by exhorting Three different people who are experiencing three different things, and he tells them three different exhortations. The first group is found in verse 13. Look what James says. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Those of you who are going through a hard time, James tells us, it's very natural for you to worry, to think catastrophic thinking, worst-case scenarios. And so James tells us, hey, in the midst of your hardships, make sure that you talk to God about it. Pray. Second group. Verse 13 continues, is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. When you're going through a good season of your life, make sure that you actually continue to pray, but to praise God about it. Give him thanks. By the way, a lot of people who I talk to in our church, they're so funny. I ask them, how's your life? They go, my life is really good. I'm like, that's awesome. And they're like, yeah, that's why I'm freaked out. It's like something bad's gonna happen now. Like God's gonna do something to just wreck me. I'm like, dude, just enjoy Enjoy the blessing. And that's what James is saying. When you're going through a good season, praise God. Praise God for that season. Go to him in prayer in that way. And there's a third group in verse 14. Look what James says. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Someone, if you're sick, call the elders to come. And even though today when we think of someone who's sick, by the way, James is thinking of someone who's really sick, so sick that people have to come to him. 
We're thinking, maybe that happens in our life maybe once every three to five years where someone is really sick and we need prayer. Just know back then in the first century, it happened all the time. Before modern medicine, people were always messed up. People were always potentially on the brink of death. This was a regular thing. Come and invite people to pray for you. And so if James stopped here, we would imagine what does prayer look like in James's mind? You would think that, oh, James is pretty much saying pray in all circumstances. No matter what circumstance you're in, pray. Pray when you're suffering, praise when you're doing well, and ask others to pray for you when you're feeling actually ill. But James doesn't stop here. He keeps going. And when he keeps going, this is where it gets a little bit uh, challenging to listen to James, in my opinion. Look what he says in verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. Someone's sick, pray for them, and the prayer of faith will save him, will heal him. Now, James seems to be saying, so to pray, it's not just praying in all circumstances, but you have to pray with faith. Pray with faith, and then God's going to answer your prayers. And this is where it gets a little troubling. What is the prayer of faith that James is talking about? It sounds like what James is saying is, if you want something, and you want God to answer your prayer, you better have faith. You better really have faith, like a strong faith, because that's the only way God's going to answer you. And if that's what James is saying, we have a couple of problems. One problem is that if it's up to your faith for your, your prayer to get answered, that's a real burden on you. Because if God doesn't answer whatever prayer you're asking for, it's your fault. It's your fault. I remember there was a church that I was attending when I first became a Christian. It was one of the churches, I visited many different churches, but there was one church I was visiting, and apparently they're part of this like, campaign where they're trying to raise up money for like, this mission trip. I don't know what it was, but they're just trying to raise up money. And so I went to this church for like three weeks or so, and they're always saying, like, Let's, we're having prayer meetings to raise money, we're having prayer meetings to like, reach this goal. And I remember that last week I was there, it, the campaign ended, and they said, we didn't reach the goal because you didn't pray hard enough. And so we need another prayer meeting. And they just like start praying. And in my brain, maybe because I was a new Christian, I'm just like, maybe just people just didn't give. Like, I don't know what's going on. But there was almost like this feeling of like, it was your fault that this didn't happen because you didn't have enough faith. So that's one problem. It feels like a burden. But let's imagine there's another problem that happens is let's pretend you do have a lot of faith. Like you really believe. Like, I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to church every week. And I really pray that God lets this happen. But if God doesn't seem to answer that prayer, What happens? You get very disillusioned. I know someone whose loved one was really sick, and it was in the church, and they're asking the whole church, let's pray for this person. This person is really sick in their family, so let's pray. I really believe God's going to really answer our prayer. Everyone is praying, and they're really like, being faithful. They're fasting, and that person, they didn't make it. They passed away. What happens when you have a community like that? What happens if you experience like, this idea that God answers prayers, but he doesn't seem to answer your prayer? You know what happens? A lot of us here, you no longer really believe in prayer, but you'll still pray. It's just now really generic. Your prayer life just becomes this generic thing that you just do as a Christian duty. You'll pray, Lord, bless this meal. Lord, bless this day. Oh, that person's sick. Lord, would you heal that person? Oh, they're still sick and God didn't heal them? Huh? Oh, well. In other words, your prayer life is just kind of this thing you do, and it doesn't really stress you out. It doesn't bother you. Prayers is just kind of this religious thing that you just kind of do, and you just tell people, I'll pray for you. But when God doesn't answer your prayers, it ain't no thing to you. It's no thing. It doesn't shake you. Because for you, you're not really banking on those prayers to do anything. Your prayers don't really mean anything. It's just this religious duty that you're doing. 
And just know James, what he would say is if that's your prayer life or your prayer, you, the way you pray is just these generic meal prayers, well, I'm praying for you, but it doesn't really bother you if nothing happens. Those aren't real prayers to James. Because the types of prayers God answers is a prayer of faith. And again, we have to ask that question, what is the prayer of faith that James is talking about? It's interesting, the Bible, whenever it talks about some type of term, the Bible rarely gives a definition for something. It always explains it through a story. You guys know what sin is? Like when the Bible describes sin, do you know what it is? You know in the Bible, there's not a really a place that says sin is this. In Genesis 3, that's the first time you see the concept of sin come in the Bible. You know what happens after Genesis 3, like what it shows sin is? Genesis 4, story of Cain and Abel, that's sin. You know what sin is? Story of Noah and the flood, that's sin. You know what sin is? Tower of Babel, that's sin. The Bible tends to share stories to show us this is what the Bible is talking about when it explains concepts. And James is doing the same thing here. You know what the prayer of faith is? Let me tell you a story. Look at the person of Elijah. In verse 17 to 18, 18, James mentions Elijah randomly because he's an example of what he's talking about, the prayer of faith, the prayer of a righteous person. Now, if you know anything about Elijah, he is a character in the Old Testament featured in 1 Kings, and he is a man of prayer, and he has some, like, wild stories. You ever meet, like, those old grandpas who are missionaries, and they tell you, like, oh, this is what Jesus did in my life, and it's, like, these crazy stories going through. That's not real, man. Like, you must be making that up. That was, like, Elijah. Elijah had these crazy stories, and these were, like, stories of prayer, and it's recorded in the Bible. For example, there's a story where Elijah is talking to these prophets of Baal. You guys might, some of you might know the story where they're like, the Baal's a real God. And Elijah's like, no, no, Yahweh's a real God. And Elijah prays. All of a sudden, right when he prays, boom, fire comes down, burns up the altar. Dramatic story. Or here's another story where Elijah, he sees a widow, her son passes away. So Elijah does a weird thing where he lies in the dead body and he prays. And all of a sudden, boom, the son comes alive. And it's like, dude, this guy, that's prayer. That looks like this faithful, prayerful man. And yet, even though those are the crazy stories of Elijah's life, those are not the stories James highlights. James goes, pray like Elijah, and he highlights this weird, obscure story that I'm sure none of us really remember. Look at verse 17 to 18, what James says. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly. Oops. Actually, no, sorry. I'm looking at James. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. This story refers to 1 Kings chapter 18. A drought had taken place, meaning the land was super dry. There's no rain anywhere for three years. And Elijah, he actually prayed for the drought, and then he prayed for the drought to end. Now, what's really fascinating about this story is this is how it's described in 1 Kings 18. It says, Elijah went up to the summit of Carmel. He bent down the ground, put his face between his knees, and then he said to his servant, go up and look toward the sea. So he went, looked, and said, there's nothing. Seven times Elijah said, go back. And on the seventh time he reported, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming up from the sea. This is the prayer of faith according to James. Now, notice a couple of things about Elijah. Notice when he prays, next slide. The way he prays is he bent down the ground and put his face between his knees. Whenever Elijah prayed, he did his weird posture. And sometimes you might think, oh, he just bent in the ground. No, no, he put his face in his knees. So you know what this prayer posture looks like? It looks like this. That's how Elijah was praying. What does that remind you of? All the ladies, it's labor. It's a laborous position. You're about to give birth. And that's what Elijah did all the time when he prayed. He would pray put his head between his knees and just pray. Why is he praying that way? Because when you give birth, what are you doing? You're anticipating something's going to happen. It might be a long time. 
It might take a lot, much longer than you'd want it to. It might even be painful. But you're anticipating something's going to come out. Something's going to happen. And that's what Elijah, how he prayed. Anticipating something's going to happen. God's going to answer in some way. And not only that, notice what happens also. It says, on the seventh time, he reported as a, small, a cloud as small as a man's hand coming up from the sea. Elijah, normally when he prayed in the other stories, the fire, for example, he just prayed, boom, fire. Prayed for the widow's son, boom, widow came, the widow's son came alive. Here, when he's praying for rain, he, didn't, it, he prayed once, nothing happened. Prayed twice, didn't happen. Three times, four times. It took the seventh time for finally for them to see not a big thunderstorm, but this small cloud as big as a hand just appear. And for Elijah, it's like, oh, that's God doing something. And this is what James is getting at. Praying the prayer of faith is not this like intense prayer. It's not this dramatic prayer where he's like, hey, if you want really God to answer prayers, you have to pray dramatically, these crazy prayer meetings that are there. The prayer of faith is actually an anticipation that God's going to answer. To pray with faith is you are anticipating God's going to answer your prayers no matter how long it takes no matter how it seems, and no matter how it looks. But you keep praying. And not for religious reasons, but you really believe, I think God's going to answer this somehow, some way. You may not get the answer that you want right away. Take seven times for Elijah. It might look like a small cloud and you don't even know exactly what's going on. But you're anticipating God is answering this prayer. That these prayers are not for nothing. That something is going to happen. I, do- I don't doubt many of you in this room that you pray regularly. But I wonder how many of us do you pray with this type of anticipation? How many of you do you pray continually where you pray to the point where you might be disappointed, where you feel sad that, wow, why isn't God answering my prayers? My guess is for a lot of us, we haven't prayed this way in a long time. Again, generic prayers, safe prayers. But really pray, I really think God's gonna do something. When's the last time you prayed for that? That's what James is saying what the life of prayer looks like. Craig Blomberg, he's a commentator and scholar, he says it like this, quote, the promise of healing for the sick, it offers a much needed corrective for those of us who have trouble praying boldly. For we fear or even assume that God will not do what we ask of him. But instead, we ought to pray boldly, believing that he is a God of power and love and that he listens to the prayers of his people. Do you believe that? Recently, I had coffee with an older gentleman. He was in his 50s. And he was sharing with me, and we just got to know each other about our past life stories. And he shared how growing up, he had a very broken relationship with his father. And he was an Asian guy, so I'm like, dude, I I totally know your story. I get it. Like, there's so many of us who have broken stories. But he kind of explained why his relationship with his dad was broken, where his dad was, you know, typical, like, father, sometimes emotionally distant, verbally abusive to the family. But then when he was in junior high, his father actually abandoned the family and left, and he rarely kept in touch with his son. And so this person I was talking to, he said he grew up feeling very bitter towards his dad for his whole life, all the way up to college. But then in college, he became a Christian, the the son. And when he became a Christian, he realized, you know, one relationship he should be praying for is for his father. And even though he hasn't seen his dad for a long time, his dad didn't really keep in touch, he just prayed for his dad, like, I hope we can have a restored relationship. I hope God brings healing. And he really wanted healing to happen between them. And so this person, he prayed for many years, praying, 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 until finally a moment came where he heard the news that his father passed away. And that was really discouraging because he was praying for his dad this whole time, hoping one day they could reconcile. But now he would never get the chance because his father passed away. 
And so he just thought that was just, you know, what was that wasted season, whatever that was, and never thought too much of it until years later when the son, he became a dad himself. And he was sharing how once he had kids, something happened. When he had kids, all of a sudden he started thinking about his dad a lot. He started thinking about how hard it must have been for his father to raise him, how hard it must have been as an immigrant to be able to raise kids, the pressure, the suffering, the struggle. He understood even why he might have even left. Just a lot of empathy arose. And he told me something that, just a line that stuck with me that I won't forget, where he was telling me, you know, my dad, he's been dead for over 10 years now, but my relationship with him gets better every year. And it just kind of shows like, wow, like, you know, however you want to look at that, those prayers weren't for anything. They weren't a waste. He was praying for his father. He was praying for there to be healing. And it happened in a weird way. And yet somehow, some way, he was getting healing in this weird small cloud that just came out of nowhere. And same for us. I know for a lot of us here, there are things we might be praying for or things we just gave up praying for because it's just too painful to believe. For some of us here, maybe there's someone who's sick in your family. You've been praying for them for a while, but it just, what's the point? It just seems like, man, I don't know if anything's going to happen, so you just stopped. Some of you have just messed up relationship with people in your family. I know I'm part of a group where a lot of us, we share, man, all of our brothers are messed up. Like, every single brother in our family, there's something, like, there's something off with them. And we almost feel like, man, what's the point of praying for them anymore? Because they just seem lost. Maybe for our kids, they just seem like, I'm not sure how, what to happen, what could God do with them, or even wanting kids, or even the, the health of our children. Or just someone in our life where the situation, there's something needs to change. For a lot of us here, we just kind of stop praying for it. Or if it's at most generic. But this is where for a lot of us, if we do that, you give up the access to potential power that God has to offer us. Something where God alone, he could do something and may not be the way we think it would. It may take a long time, but God answers prayers. And that's what James wants us to believe. Imagine if our church, we actually prayed in this way. Imagine if we were a church that would constantly, when we pray for things, when I ask you, what do you need prayer for? You told me some vulnerable stuff. Not just, oh, I pray I have a good week. Oh, pray my summer isn't awesome. But you, like, no, pray that this, this thing that's happening in life, it is so hard, and I really want it to change. Can you pray for that? Can you imagine if our church would pray that way? You know what type of church we'd be? We'd be a church filled with people who are always disappointed, We'll be filled with a church of people who are sometimes amazed, like, wow, this actually happened. We'll be filled with a church filled with frustration, a church filled with anticipation and hope. We'll be a church where the spirit is just moving because that's what real prayer does. Real prayer brings you high and low, anticipating disappointment, miracles, versus generic prayers, you're just kind of stagnant. And this is what James wants for our lives. If you really want to live a life according to the gospel, don't just pray, let your prayers be real. Believe that God will answer no matter how long it takes. We need a life of real prayer. Secondly, in order for us to live a life according to the gospel, we, need, we can't do it alone, but James tells us we need a community of faith. Notice James, everything he's instructing people to do in his letter, especially in chapter five, he tells us you can't do this, don't, he's not telling us to do this alone, but do it with people. Do it with the, the church. Pray to each other. Invite the elders to come. Why? And the James tells us in verse 19. Look at verse 19, how he opens it. My brothers and sisters. Those of us who grew up in the church, that's just kind of a throwaway line. Oh yeah, my brother, my sister. But in the first century, that was serious stuff. James doesn't just say this once. He says it 14 times in his letter. Because for James, he's saying, you know what you are, church? You're not just a group of people. You're not just a club. You're not just a social community. But you are a family. 
You are brothers and sisters. And that's such an ironic term for James to use because family for all of us, it is usually the source of our deepest joy in life or our deepest pain. Family is a trigger word for some of us in good ways or for bad ways. And I I shared this before in the past, but the reason why family is such a touchy subject for some of us is because of this idea that psychologists call attachment theory. Attachment theory argues that you are designed for relationships and you naturally attach to people. I have a baby daughter, her name is Isabella. She don't like me. Like some of you guys know, like she never smiles at me. Sometimes I have to watch her and she goes, no. And I'm like, no, come to daddy, no. And she pushes me away, but it's just me and her. And so I just go, okay, I go to my room. And what happens? I just see her peek out into my door. And she just walks into my room. She's in the same space with me. I'm like, what's wrong with her? I thought she don't like me. Ah, attachment theory. She needs to be attached to something. You're just wired that way. You are attached to people. You just need to attach to people. And the first people who you are attached to, it's always going to be your family. It's always going to be those who you grew up with. And that's why when your family is really good and healthy, you attach to other people very healthily. You don't demand too much of them. You don't minimize them. You just are very healthy expectations. But if your family is really messed up, man, is it hard to attach to people well? That tends to be the reason why a lot of our friendships, a lot of our dating relationships, a lot of our marriages, a lot of our children, we wrestle and struggle in relationship with them because we didn't learn how to attach in a healthy way because that's how our family experience, how we experience our family. How do you recover from this? I shared a study before, but they did a study nationwide where it said, hey, if you experience trauma, how do you, especially from your family, how do you get better from that trauma? And without fail, it doesn't matter what type of trauma you experience, the number one way that you get better from your trauma is always through relationships. It's always through people because you are hurt at the deepest level through your relationships, but you are healed at the deepest level through relationships. They are the main source of your pain, people, but they are also the main source of how you get healed. doesn't mean they have to be the perfect people, but you just need healthy community to come together to experience that healing. And this is exactly what James tells us. James tells us, be part of a community of faith. Why? So you can be healed. Look what he says in verse 16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Usually when we think of confessing our sins, we think forgiveness. And so pray to God to experience forgiveness. And it's true. We really believe through the gospel, if you pray to the Lord to forgive us of your sins, that we have a God who is gracious and will forgive you of your sins. But James tells us, don't just pray to God to forgive your sins, but confess your sins to each other. Not so that you experience forgiveness, but you experience healing. And that's why a lot of churches today, what you have is a group of people who have confessed their sins to God and they are forgiven, but we're all still really messed up because we don't confess our sins to each other. So we're not healed, we're wounded. We're still wounded from things that we have done or that things have done to us, and we bring this dysfunction into the community. And so James tells us, if you want to experience healing, you have to confess your sins to one another. Now, that idea of confessing your sins to somebody, I don't know about you, but I grew up Roman Catholic, so I just have like this confession booth mentality where, okay, I confess my sins in a super formal way, and is that what James is telling me to do? Well, that's awkward. Even my community group, I'm like, I'm not sure if I can really do that. That's kind of strange. But if you actually think about what James is talking about, like, hey, confessing your sins to one another, it's not this religious thing that I think James has in mind. But it's actually really a freeing thing that James wants us to feel. Uh, do you guys remember back in 2018 this thing called Finsta? You guys know what I'm talking about? 
Yeah, some of you all know. If you guys don't, all, all of us older people, if you don't know, Finsta, back in 2018, this is before um, Instagram had the Instagram for friends thing. Finsta was people, they would create a fake Instagram account because their real Instagram account was for everybody. Like they have thousands of followers, so they post their vacation. Hawaii was wonderful. My kids are awesome. Then their Finsta, they're like, I hated Hawaii. It was hell. My kids are the devils. And they just share how here, like all their victories and how they killed it. But here in their Finsta, where there's only like five followers, their closest friends, they're like, man, my work sucks. I'm so insecure. This is the failures I went through. Because you just kind of need some outlet that's there. And it was so ironic. Like your real Instagram account is like the fake you. And your fake Instagram account is like the real you. Really strange. And yet I can't help but think like how freeing must this one be? The Finsta. This one must be so burdensome. They have to have the best pose, the best type of caption. Versus this one, you just kind of post whatever you want. And it's all good because the people who are around you, it's safe. They know you. They love you. They won't judge you. You could just show the good and the bad. And I think James is getting at something for us today. Every day you put on a mask for your coworkers, for your friends, for your neighbors, on social media. But James is telling us what you need, though, is a community, a people, where you could take that mask off and just share the worst parts of you. Everywhere else you share the best parts, but let there be a community where you could share your insecurities, your fear, your shame. And that's what confessing our sins looks like. When you confess your sins like this, you're bringing some type of healing to your soul. Because as one author says on the screen, he says, quote, confession, it is good for the soul because it brings unloved parts of our character to places of love. The parts that you are hiding that you feel like will lead to rejection and shame, what James is saying, you gotta let that out to people. Let them see it so you can know that you are still loved. This is what James is talking about. That's what confession is. Now, how can we have a community where we could freely confess our sins like this, freely confess our weaknesses and our hardships? You know what it, what it takes? It takes a lot of work. If I told you now, go during lunch, confess your sins, nobody's going to do it. Nobody's going to do it. You know why? Because this, this is a community that James has in mind. And community like this, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work to build that type of comfort zone. I remember I was talking to a church member. He's pretty funny. Like I was asking, hey, how's church going? You know, how's life? How's things? How's church going? The like, church is good. But you know, to be honest, at this church, it's really hard to get plugged in. Like people are nice here, but it's hard to get plugged in at this church. And when he said that, it took all my power to not say this, but in my brain, I was thinking, oh, at this church, it's hard. I wonder where this magical church is where it's easy to get plugged in. There's nowhere easy because community is hard. It's like if someone told me, man, marriage, my marriage is so hard. It's so stressful being married. I'd be like, welcome to marriage. Marriage is hard. And you could think, oh, there's someone better out there for me. Go ahead and marry that person. It'll be just as hard because marriage is hard. I'm shocked that we're shocked how hard it is to get plugged into a church. We presume almost it's supposed to be easy. This is hard. It's hard to get to this level that James is talking about because for that, anything beautiful to happen, you have to put in the work. It's going to be challenging. And a lot of us, we're not really used to that. Tim Keller, he says, uh, everybody, uh, everybody wants community, but rarely does anybody want to make the sacrifices necessary for community. Because it takes sacrifice. And so when we look at this, how do, we, how do we cultivate a community that can be free like this? 
where we can be vulnerable and open and deep. Just know we're doing a whole sermon series on this in the summer. So today is just kind of, uh, doesn't really answer it. I got like five minutes to kind of explain all that, but we do a whole sermon series on it. But let me argue that to create a community like this, you need at least two things, intentionality and time. Um, let me show you a chart up here. Imagine there's a graph where there's, you know, you're being intentional and you're being unintentional. And imagine another graph right here where there's a little time and there's a long time. Some of you, when you think about the church and community, you're here. You've been at our church for a few weeks. You've been here on Sunday. You say hello to a few people, and that's it. And some of us, if you visit churches for a few weeks and you say hello, you think, Where, what, where's the community, man? How come, no, why, why don't we get plugged in? It's like, bro, you've been here for like two weeks, and you only said hello to the welcoming person. That, that's not how community works. In fact, it's not even two weeks. It's not even months. Some people, it takes a long time. But for here, it's like, you don't experience this, but if this is all you do when you come together on a Sunday, you know what happens? Community to you, next slide, shallow. It's just gonna be shallow because you're jumping from pool to pool, different churches, different churches, only going Sundays. But what James describes, you can't do that in one Sunday. It doesn't work that way. Some of us, were different. We're, next slide, we're, uh, we're really intentional like, man, I want to get plugged in. And so you do everything. You sign up for all the book clubs. You go to all the meetings. You go to all the lunches. And the reason why you do that is because you're, like, used to going to retreats, mission trips. We're like, man, I remember meeting with people for 12 weeks. We were, like, homies. We were, like, super close. And I know some people, like, they went to mission trips and retreats, and that's, like, their community. To this day, that's, like, man, I always look back at that being, like, the highlight of my Christian community. But that was, they're, like, now 30 or 40, but they still reference back their mission team. And it's, like, you know, that's cool and all, but the reason why it's not there anymore is because the time is over. Like, that's just built to have a 12-week intensity thing. But if that's how you're living your life, what ends up happening is it's a very temporary community for you. Very temporary. And you just long, you're like, uh, I'm not sure if you guys know Al Bundy. You're like Al Bundy, looking back at the high school days, like, man, that was great. It's like, that was so temporary. Community doesn't work that way, the way James talks about. Some of us were, were here, though, where you've been at a community for a long time, years. Like, you're like OG, long time. But not much intentionality. Like, you're just kind of here. Just say hello. Everyone kind of knows who you are but just kind of there, floating a bit. And again, all good, long time. But if you keep staying there, what's going to happen is this. You just get comfortable. You're just comfortable. The community is not really growing you. You're not really growing the community. You're just comfortable, and that's why a lot of people stay here. Because especially in the OC, we just like comfort. But come here, this slide. When you are in a community for, with a law of intentionality, and you're there for a long time, Something interesting happens where all of a sudden you're like, hmm, people are in your life where you're now being challenged. All of a sudden you feel like these interesting attachments, these interesting healing moments that take place. And it's because you're doing a lot of intentional stuff and it's happening over a long period of time. And that's how community works. And so when you look at this chart and you look at this in in terms of community, where do you stand And in what ways do you need to grow? Some of you, you're right here. You've been at the church for a little bit, and you're here on Sundays, and that's about it. All good. All good. However, if you want to experience community the way James is talking about, this freeing place where you could 
let down your guard. Have people just really care for you to just let the real you come out. It's going to take more than just a Sunday morning. It's going to take a little bit of intentionality outside the Sundays. It might be something that God's challenging to do. Some of you, you're here. You're, you're trying, but you're really disappointed. Like, you try with people. You, like, reach out. You do everything at the church, but, like, man, like, you just don't feel plugged in. You just feel like no one really gets you. You don't have, like, that group yet. Totally empathize. Just so that's a, it could be a frustrating thing. And what I encourage you is, like, dude, community, it takes time. It takes a while for that to happen for some people. I always tell new married couples when they bring their spouse to our church, I always tell them, you know, it's probably going to take you three to five years to feel comfortable here. And it's not because of our church. Go to any church. For a lot of people, it could take that year. If you're like, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. I got comfortable right away. You won the lottery, dude. You won the lottery because that's really rare. It's far more common. It takes just time to have a community where you feel this type of freedom that James is talking about. For some of you, you might be here. Where you've been here for a long time, and you're just comfortable. But if you think about it, not really sure if you're growing. And it could be you're like a marriage that you've been married for like 10 years, but your marriage was kind of like bleh. You know what marriage counselors tell couples like that? Go on date nights, dude. To have real conversations. In other words, do things that, you, that are different than what you normally do in a marriage. That's what wakes your marriage up. Same with a community. Do things that are different that you normally would never do. You, you know people play pickleball at our church all the time? You don't play pickleball? Go play pickleball. You never would do it, but just do it. You know book studies? You haven't read a book since high school, but just join one. Read a book. Community groups, dude, you, you want to avoid community. That's the last thing you want. And yet, maybe that's something that you need to do because you've been here for a long time and you've just been way too comfortable. And then some of us here, you might be here, where it's like, man, yeah, I feel community here. Just know that is a blessing, and I'm guessing that wasn't automatic for a lot of us, especially after a long time. Those of us, you know, if you've been here for a little bit, you're like, community is awesome, just wait. People get married off, people leave, your community changes, what do you do? But when you're here, man, just wait. Oftentimes, unless your church is super toxic, oftentimes interesting things happen. Uh, You know, when I first came to this community, I was the only person my age here some of y'all, you kind of complain, like, my class, you know, our class is not united. There's only five of us. At least you had a class. Nobody in my class was here. I was the only person in this church my age for five years. Five years, I was the only person. Thank God I'm an introvert. So it was okay. It's all good. But then something interesting happened where amidst of those years, all of a sudden, you know, people who, who I was in the church with, all of a sudden new people came. I'm just like, oh, we did like a Bible study together. And I'm like, oh, this person, we just started connecting, having real fellowship. Another person came years later. I'm just like, oh, I'm just like having fellowship. Later, some of those guys became like my groomsmen. That was not planned at all. It just kind of happened. And they happened to be in the same community and church as me. One particular story that I enjoy a lot is I remember one time a few years ago, there was a guy who came to our church. He was kind of new. Uh, he was coming because he was, uh, he was actually serving in a certain ministry. And I was like, I, just, I had no commonality with this guy. Like, this guy grew up super Asian. I was not Asian at all. And I remember he was like 10 years younger than me. I'm just like, okay, whatever. But then slowly, we just happened to be in the same church. We started talking. We started serving together. He joined our staff. And later on, that's Pastor Sam. Sam Bay. I had no intention of talking to Sam Bay and being his friend. He was totally different life stage, totally different age group. I had no, not, we didn't come to church together. He just happened to be there. And yet, I joke with people all the time, I see Sam more than my own wife. We just share life together all the time. How did that happen? God just does something. 
God just saw something where in this community, he changes, he brings people, he brings new faces, and you just sometimes need to give it time. You just need to give it time. And that's what we need to do as a, if you want a community of faith. Intentionality over a long period of time. And again, we'll share a lot more about that in the summer, but that's the second thing we need, a community of faith. Last but not least, if you want to, serve, if you want to live a life according to the gospel, we need to genuinely care for each other. And I'll go through this quick. James, he closes this last section and he tells us, don't just care about yourself, but you actually need to care for other people. Look what he says in verse 19. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Notice what James is talking about here. He says, when someone in your church turns away from the truth, and the truth for James is not just this intellectual doctrine thing. Truth for James is like your life. You live according to what you believe. And so James is saying, when someone walks away from the truth, meaning someone's walking away from the Christian faith with their life, and notice how James describes this. He uses this word stray. He strays from the truth. The Greek word is the word planete, which is the root word for planet. If you ever look in the sky, if you happen to have a telescope and you see a planet, that thing don't move. That thing like this looks like it's still. But just know it is moving. It is slowly moving. And, years, and then months and months later, it's in a totally different spot. Very slow. That's what James says happens to people. Rarely someone wakes up going, I'm an atheist today. Man, I'm going to just do drugs today. That's very rare. What usually happens is a slow drift. Slow drift where all of a sudden their profession of faith looks totally different than their life. James says that's what happens to people. And James says, and you know who has to pay attention to this? Not the elders, not the pastors, but who? Verse 19 again, my brothers and sisters, if any among you meaning you pay attention to this. Think about somebody you know in the church, in your community group. They're missing. You haven't seen them in a while. They're struggling. You know they're struggling, and you just are aware of this person. Whose responsibility is it to talk to them, to care for them? It's you. It's your responsibility. That's who James is talking to. Now, why does James end his letter this way? Why does James say, and that's the last thing I want you guys to know, and there's, I think there's a couple reasons. One is um, you can't survive the Christian faith without people caring for you. And that's why uh, at, I always say at our church, one thing that's really sad is if you've been at our church, or you've been at any church rather, and you're gone for like months because you've been going through stuff, and you come back and nobody notices you've been gone, it's really sad. Versus one thing I'm really encouraged by our church is membership at our church. If you're not here, we notice. And it's not in this I've been noticing way. It's like we know. Like, we know when people are missing. We know people are probably struggling. We have people who pray for people who are missing. We always let our church know, like, hey, this person, we're concerned that we haven't seen them in a while. And that's showing care, where we don't want people just to be missing because you never know what they're going through. And because you need people to reach out to them, to, to minister to them. But here's another thing that's really interesting of why James cares about this so much. Who benefits from this? Who benefits from reaching out to those who are wandering like this? It's very interesting. In verse 20, he says, let that person know whoever turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and cover multitude of sins. In the original Greek, the language here, the grammar is really ambiguous. You actually don't know who James is talking about. Who's actually getting restored in their soul? The wanderer or the person chasing the wanderer? The, grammatically, it's ambiguous. You don't know who, who the person is. And commentators think, that, commentators think that James is being purposeful about that. Yes, that person who's being reached out to is being helped, but you who are going out and reaching out to them, when you do that, you are restoring your own soul. You are doing something to your soul right there. 
Because when you are at a place where you're not just concerned about your life and how am I doing with Jesus, how am I doing my life, but you're actually caring about other people, that's the gospel right there. That's when you get it. Because we believe in a God who cared about us to reach down to you and I, to send Jesus Christ to live and to die for our sins, and he keeps pursuing us. He keeps chasing after the wanderers, including you and me. And because he did that, that's why we have new life with Jesus. And James is saying, when you do that for other people, that's when you're looking like Jesus. You're not just concerned about your own soul, but you're concerned about the souls of other people here. That's the church that's really looking a lot like Christ. And so let me ask a couple of reflective questions. Who's wandering around you right now? Who's somebody you know where you're like, hmm, yeah, I haven't seen them in a while. I know they're struggling. Just know. The, the burden is, I think God's stirring for you. Maybe you should do something. Or just be praying for them, just messaging them. But this is what the church is called to do. Or maybe you're wandering right now. Maybe like, yeah, you know, I've been, I've been like this planet that's been slowly moving away. Perhaps today, at this halfway point of the year, especially as we take the Lord's Supper, we could check our souls and come before the Lord at this time. And so can I pray for us? And then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let's all pray.